0: Haste, haste to bring him laud. Hurry, quickly, let's worship our Savior. Isn't that not one of the greatest paradoxes, that the creator of the universe came to us in this little manger? He didn't have to come that way, but he did. Let's go ahead and begin uh, in a word of prayer today. Thank you, Lord, for uh, all of... The truth that we've been able to meditate on in song today. We thank you that you have uh, provided to us a means whereby we might be saved. We thank you for the gospel, for redemption, and we thank you that it comes to us through this, what seems to us from human eyes, unlikely source. And yet you delight in working in these ways. Specifically, you delight in confounding human wisdom and doing things quite the opposite of what we would think. And you do this so that you might declare that your wisdom is better than ours. We thank you for this. We thank you for the gospel. We thank you for Christmas. In Christ's name, amen. The Westminster Catechism famously gives the following question and answer And the question, as all of you probably know it, is simply this. What is the chief and highest end of man? And of course, the answer to this is man's chief and highest end is to glorify God and to enjoy him fully forever. The pinnacle of human experience is worship. No human being will ever not worship. All of us are worshipers. The question really is not whether we will or whether we will not worship. The question, of course, is what will we worship? Ecclesiastes makes this very clear. When we read in Ecclesiastes chapter 3 and verse 11, uh, he has put eternity into man's heart. God has put eternity into our hearts so that we, by default, crave things outside of ourselves and we recognize that there is something outside of ourselves that is bigger than us and that is worthy of worship, something that we could find meaning and purpose in outside of the self. Romans 1 also says, makes this theme very clear, that we are worshipers at heart. The way that Romans 1 makes this clear is that it basically says that if you will not worship the creator, you will worship the creature. Romans 1, in 24 through 25, talking about God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and did what? What? What is the key thing here? They worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. One writer uh, conveys this and says it this way. Try as he may, a person cannot escape his or her worshiping heart. And that is certainly true. Either you will worship God or you will worship something else, but you will not worship nothing. And here's a quick uh, litmus test to find out what people are worshiping. How do I know, even if I were to evaluate my own heart internally or as I interact with others, how do I know what somebody is worshiping? Well, one way to find out is how does that person or how do you react when you lose that thing? What is your reaction like? If this thing were taken away from me, your reaction could convey that you have been worshiping that particular thing. And we can worship all sorts of things. We, we, we know that we ought to worship the one and the true Trinitarian God. We can worship false gods. We can be idolatrous, so we can worship a false god like Allah or Buddha or the Jehovah Witness version of, or whatever whatever else. Keep in mind, though, that when we are talking about idolatry, we are talking about worship, we are not merely talking about worship in a stated deity. We may be worshiping things like ideologies or things or people. The Bible gives us a rather interesting list of things that are idolatrous that we would not necessarily think of. When you think of worship, and, and I'm going somewhere with this, so, so this is going to be a Christmas message, okay? So hang on, okay? <laughs> this is going there. When you, think of, when you think of worship, okay? Again, we normally think of maybe I'm going to, you can worship the true God or you can worship, bow down to this uh, carved image or this other God. But the Bible tells us that there are other things that are considered idolatry. One of those things is that the Bible says that presumption, if you are a presumptuous individual, that is idolatry. In 1 Samuel 15, 23, we read this. Rebellion is as the sin of divination and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Presumption, a presumptuous heart is an idolatrous heart. Colossians 3 in verse 5 says that if you have a covetous heart, if you are someone who is uh, covetous, then you are worshiping a false god. It says this, put to death whatever is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. The Bible tells us that sexual immorality is idolatry. 1 Corinthians 10.7, Do not be idolaters, false worshipers, as some of them were, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. And of course, we know, as we have uh, recently gone through a series in 1 Corinthians, that this reference to sitting down to eat and drink and rising up to play is a reference to sexual immorality. The Bible also tells us that my physical strength can be something that is um, a false god for me. In Habakkuk 1 and verse 11, uh, it says, Then they sweep by like the wind and go on guilty men whose own might is their god. Their own might, their own strength is their god. Now, in all of this, Our task as believers in Christ is not to stop worshiping, but it is to worship the right thing. It is to redirect our worship in the right direction. And so let me, before we get any further off track than we already are, point in the direction that we're going with the text today. Today's text, today's passage is Matthew chapter 2, 1 through 2. If you've not turned there already, please turn your Bible to Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 2. Matthew 2, 1 through 2, and I'm going to read this for us today, and hopefully you'll see with this theme of worship the direction that we're going with our particular passage here today. Matthew 2, 1 through 2 says this, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him we have come to worship him this is what our passage is about today and so let's jump right into this when we come to matthew chapter 2 I would venture to guess that many of us, upon reading these couple of verses and and reading further into the, the chapter, many of us will walk away with more questions than we will with answers. We have, for instance, this mention of the wise men or literally the magi. Who were the magi? How many were there? Where did they come from? Did they embrace Christ as God? Did they fully understand all of that? How did they know to look for a star? How did they know to associate a star and this particular star with the Jewish prophecy about Christ? And there are many, many questions like these when it comes to the Christmas season that we just don't have answers to. And while all these questions are intriguing, the Bible simply does not give us clear answers to them. There are some traditions that have arisen. Uh, for, for instance, in the Middle Ages, there was a tradition that there were three wise men corresponding to the three gifts. And so these things may be true, they may not be true. A lot of it is speculation. My only point here as we begin to look at this passage is to remind us not to get distracted from the main thrust of the passage, Yes, is it interesting to, to ponder and speculate? I wonder how many, I wonder exactly where they can, I wonder, uh, certainly there's, there's a, an appropriate time, and appropriate place for that kind of thing. But the important thing is not to get distracted from what the text says and what it's telling us about the Lord. If the Lord had wanted us to know all of the, these little details, then he would have given them to us. So we will be content to focus on what is emphasized in the passage, and so with that, let us turn and establish a little bit of the context that we do know before we get to what I'm going to suggest to us is the pinnacle at the end of verse two. In verse one of Matthew chapter two, we uh, we read uh, that after Jesus was born in Bethlehem, what happened? After this took place, there were wise men who came to Jerusalem. Now, let me just focus a a brief moment here on the word after, okay? Just to clarify as much misconception as we can. The wise men, or the magi, came after Christ had been born, okay? Um, We also know that according to verse 11, they visited him in a house and not in a stable, okay? And we do know that Herod, after they tricked him and left, called for all of the male children, two years old and under, to be killed, okay? Here's what I'm saying. We don't know when the wise men came. We know they did not come on the night of his birth, as is traditionally taught. The Bible teaches us that they came after that moment, how far after, we don't know. I would say up to two years since Herod had two and under, okay? Uh, up to that amount of time afterwards is when they came. I do know that some Christians, I don't know if anyone here does this or not, some, some people uh, in their manger scenes that they set up each year, what do they do? They don't put the wise men in the manger scene Have you ever done this or seen anyone do this? Put the wise men like in some other part of the house, like they're kind of on their way, okay? You don't have to do this, okay? You can put them in the manger scene, okay? That's fine. You can put it all there. Just kind of know in the back of your mind that they were not there on that particular night. They were not, it's not totally accurate, okay? But just, that's fine, okay? And so, so they come at some point afterwards. We don't know exactly when. We also know that these magi, come somewhere from the, uh, from the east, and they come during uh, the days of Herod, and they come to Jerusalem to find Jesus. Now, one of the other questions and speculations has been how in the world did these wise men, these magi, know to come at this particular time? It may be that they actually knew Balaam's prophecy, which you may remember from the book of Numbers, In chapter 24 and verse 17, Balaam made a prophecy about the Jewish people and he said this, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. Okay, and so it is possible that these wise men were familiar with this prophecy and so there was something about this star that they knew Uh, a king would be born. Whatever the specific prophecy, whatever the specific reason, they came and they come. And here's the irony about this whole story and this whole situation, okay? Who is coming to worship this king and who is not coming to worship this king? These... Gentile men. They're coming to worship. Who's not coming to worship? Jerusalem. In fact, we will, in this, later on in this passage, it says that um, Herod was distressed and it says, and all of Jerusalem with him. In fact, not only was Jerusalem, God's own people, unprepared for this event, They should have been prepared. They had scripture. They should have been prepared. They were unprepared. Not only were they unprepared, they actually were distressed about it and distraught that their Messiah had come. And so the irony is that you have these Gentile magi, these Gentile wise men who are coming to worship and God's own people, Israel, is not coming to worship. Herod is taken off his guard. Jerusalem does not even celebrate their own king which says something about the fact that the entire Old Testament, this is a theme that we've picked up a number of times before, but the entire Old Testament indicated to us over and over and over again, and here's just one little implication of this, is that salvation is not exclusively for the Jews, but for all nations. Okay? Any human being who repents on christ and believes in him will be saved it does not matter what country you come from it does not matter what language you speak it does not matter what color your skin is it does not matter what color your eyes are it does not matter if you are a male or a female nothing matters if you are a human being and you have Adam's blood flowing in your veins, as every human being does, and you repent and believe on Christ, you will be saved. This is what the gospel teaches us. Salvation from the start has always been for all nations. Now there's also built into this text a little bit of a rebuke for us, because these magi, though we don't know their exact location they came from, they probably came somewhere in the vicinity of eight to nine hundred miles to see Christ from where they were in the east. Okay? And I think maybe you know already where I'm starting to go with this. Okay. These magi traveled nine hundred miles, eight hundred miles to see Christ. This would be a journey for several months. Here's where I'm going with this. If Christ is worth making a journey of eight or nine hundred miles over several months, he is worth everything else. Okay, let me put this into our modern perspective, okay? He is worth waking up a couple minutes early and spending some time reading your Bible, okay? It, there's like, it's hard to even find a category for us today to express the, the lengths at which people in history have gone through in order to have just a piece of God's word, it, right? Like, like we, like the most minor inconvenience, and we're willing to set it all aside, Right, compared to the lengths that men and women have gone, even up to death. Matthew Henry um, teases this out a little bit in this passage. And I want to read to you what he says, because I I think it, uh, hopefully it relates to us here. Speaking of the Magi, Matthew Henry writes and says, They might have said... If such a prince be born, we shall hear of him shortly in our own country. And it will be time enough then to pay our homage to him. But so impatient were they to be better acquainted with him, they took a long journey on purpose to inquire after him. Note, those who truly desire to know Christ and find him will not regard pains or perils in seeking after him. Let me say that last part again, okay? Those who truly desire to know Christ and find him will not regard pains or perils in seeking after him. Nothing is a pain and nothing is a peril in order to seek Christ. I, I will go through whatever lengths are necessary. I will do whatever is needed so long as I can have Christ. And of course, that's what these magi did. Translate this into 21st century Christianity where we will seek Christ as long as it doesn't interfere with a very long list of my preferences and hobbies and so on and so forth. What some people have crawled through literally and fought through literally just to have access, you've heard about people trading just one page of scripture at a time to simply read it and memorize it and then pass it on to the next person and trade that. What some people have crawled through and fought through just to access one page of scripture puts so many of us to shame. We have everything at our fingertips. These men were willing to travel a great distance and at a great personal cost to see Christ. And I know I'm going to say something that I know is a little bit overused, and uh, may even sound a little bit trite, Um, but there is a lot of truth in this statement, and maybe it's been used in some odd ways, okay? But the phrase that you've all heard, wise men still seek him, okay? That is true, (laughs) okay? If you are wise, you (laughs) will seek Christ. That remains to be true, you will travel at a great distance and a great cost to see Christ. Now, let me begin to take a little bit of a turn here in a certain direction. And I'm going to say something that may sound odd at first, but, but listen to, to the direction that we're going with this. We're talking about seeking Christ, okay? In itself, this is insufficient, And here's what I mean by this. People oftentimes seek Christ for the wrong reasons, okay? For example, you have all heard of missionaries in third world countries, and they go out and they begin their mission and they start sharing the gospel with all of the locals, and what happens? Instantly crowds of people come and they're quote-unquote saved and they run to Christ and they run to the gospel and the missionary writes home and we've had an unusual outburst of acceptance and, and this has been a remarkable situation where all of these people have repented and believed on Christ and then what happens? They find out days, weeks, months later that these people are polytheistic and they are worshiping multiple gods, and they are more than happy to add any god to their list of gods to worship. And so we worship this god, the sun god, and the, the, the sky god, and the river god, and this god, and Jesus, <laughs> add to the list. And now we have another one, and we can make him happy, and so on and so forth. You see what I'm saying? We can seek Christ, quote-unquote seek him, but seek him for the wrong reasons. Or one very common in America is that one might, quote unquote, seek Christ because they think that he will give them wealth. Okay, the prosperity gospel. So if I just push the right buttons and and, and pull the right levers and I say the right words and I pray in this way but not that way and I do this but not that, then I can appease this God, Jesus. And he now, as the cosmic vending machine, will give me the exact thing that I want. But of course, this passage in front of us tells us the very precise reason why we are to seek him. Do you see it in the passage in front of us? This is the direction that we're going. Matthew 2, 1 through 2. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born the king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and we have come to worship him. See, this is the purpose, the reason for which we have come. For this particular reason, it is to worship him. Come, worship him. Come, worship Him. Come, worship Him. Come. This means that you are going to have to interrupt your plans to do something different, something intentional, something that you have thought out and planned and carried out. I have to come to Christ. This may mean that you have to travel 900 miles from the east to the west in order to see him. Or it means, it might mean that you have to deny your flesh and come even when you're tired or even when you want to pursue your hobbies or even when you want to do any other particular thing. I have to come to Christ. Worship. This means that you reverence and adore God. It means that you fall down on your face before God. It means that you love Him. That you seek Him. That you long after Him. Revelation 5.9 And they sang a new song saying... Worthy are you. Worthy are you. To take the scroll and open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. Come, worship Him. This means that we're worshiping him, not us, not false gods, not sexual immorality, not your own strength, as we saw at the very beginning, this list of things that could be things that we worship. It means that you worship him. Christmas, thus, is first about worship. Christmas is first about Jesus Christ. And this is the purpose for which the the Magi visited Christ. The text clearly says we have come to worship him. And so what I would like to see, and I know that every Christian would like to see, is a restoration of this central purpose of Christmas. What would it be like... If if we could somehow reform one thing in our country and it was worship. You realize that there would be a monumental shift in the foundations of this country if we restored worship. If, if that was, if, if you said... You have one, one thing that you can choose to restore, okay? We, we, we can totally uh, uh, um, um, uh, reform our ethics or, or, or we can totally uh, uh, eliminate uh, uh, poverty or, or whatever it might be, okay? I would pick worship for two reasons. One reason, God is is worth our worship. And here's the side note. All of those other things would bubble out of that. <laughs> Everything that is wrong with our culture would be fixed if we worship the Lord properly. This is what Christmas is all about. It is about worship. <laughs> now, what we have then is a rather hand-in-glove agreement with last week's text. Let let me me put last week's message and this week's message together. And last week's message was on Matthew 121 that says this, she will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus for he will do what? Save his people from their sins, okay? So the purpose of Jesus coming is was that he would save his people from their sins, but this purpose requires or calls for a response, a corollary. There is a divine motivation, there is a divine purpose, there is a divine intent, there is a divine accomplishment. He has come to save his people from their sins, but what is the corollary, what is the human side of this? Okay? We can't save anyone from their sins, okay? Think of it this way. Jesus comes to save. We come to worship. Hand in glove. Okay, You want to know what to do? Worship. What what am I supposed to do with my life? Honor the Lord. Praise the Lord. Exalt the Lord. Glorify him. Love him. Worship him. Everything else is at best, it's very best, second to that. At the root of everything wrong with this world is a disorder of worship. Everything. I'm going to hold to that pretty strongly, okay? Every relational conflict... Every um, societal issue, everything comes down to a problem of worship. It started off that way, by the way, in the Garden of Eden. You had a worship disorder, and it continues today in so many different ways. This is exactly, by the way, what the Lord says in Jeremiah two. You know Jeremiah two. Jeremiah two thirteen, by the way, is a good verse to jot down, highlight, underline. Memorize Jeremiah two thirteen. Okay. In fact, if you have your Bible, go ahead and turn to that right now. Okay. Jeremiah two thirteen. There there are um, there are two things going on in Jeremiah two thirteen. In fact, he says there's two things, and these two things are are complementary in nature. Okay. They are corollaries of one another. And so in Jeremiah 2.13, we read this. For my people have committed two evils. Not one, not three, not four, two evils. Everything funnels down to these two evils, two corollaries. Number one, they have forsaken me, the fountain of living water. And they have hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. So it's, imagine, it, it's two things, but it's represented in one motion. So if I'm walking in this direction, toward the worship of God, okay? Worshiping God in this direction, and all of a sudden I stop and I turn around, and I walk in this direction after any number of those other idols, whatever they are in that long list of things. There's two things that I'm doing. I'm turning away, number one, and I'm turning toward, number two. You see how that's represented in the text here in Jeremiah? They've done two things. They forsook God, so they stopped worshiping God, and they went after broken cisterns, false gods or false things that they thought could satisfy but couldn't. So on the one hand, you forsake worship of God. On the other hand, you embrace worship of something else. You forsake the fountain of living water. You stop worshiping the true God. And then the other hand, you hew out cisterns. You search for something that satisfy, but find out that nothing else satisfies. Okay. It's probably been a little while since I've said this, but you all know it, so you should... Be ready to respond right away, okay? In order to be satisfied, I need Jesus Christ plus what? Nothing, okay? It is Christ alone that satisfies. The issue with false worship is that it never satisfies. And this is uh, what we need to be be brought back to. And this is, let let me focus in. I've kind of been looking at a number of things. But let's focus in in terms of this text and Christmas Day. Here's what we need to be brought back to, and that is this. Christ satisfies. Christ ought to be worshipped. Christ ought to be magnifying. And as we said last week, this is why the celebration exists, okay? The admonition last week was don't stop the celebration. Don't, don't say, I, I'm too pious for all the celebration, okay? Okay? No. Go into the celebration, but do it understanding why you're celebrating. I'm not I'm not feasting at Christmas time for the sake of feasting, okay? I don't give gifts at Christmas time because of materialism, okay? It's because I'm worshiping Christ and we're celebrating what Christ has done. Revelation 5.13 says this. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea. Let me, let me say this again. I heard every creature in heaven, on earth, under the earth. By the way, um, I think what that means in Revelation 5.13 is every creature. Meaning, Satan, and the demons, and all of those cast into hell. There's some debate about that, okay? We can talk about that at another time. But it says every creature, okay? Every creature in heaven, on earth, under the sea, and all that is in them, saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. You know why I think that in this? Because I think the context teaches it. But also in Philippians 2, you know this. At the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. And we've, this is another thing that we brought out a number of times before. You will bow the knee to Christ. Everyone in this room right now will bow the knee to Christ. You will either do it now with joy or you will do it under compulsion at some point. But you will bow your knee to him. I heard in every creature in heaven and on earth, under the earth, in the sea, all that is in the same, to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. He is at the center of all of it. Okay, so let's land the plane here. I, I might be alone in this, I don't know. This would be an interesting conversation to have. One of the things that I have noticed recently is that modern storytelling is really bad. modern stories are not good. <laughs> now, we're, there, maybe there's a couple of them here and there, okay. I, how, do you, how do you sell a mediocre story? I, by the way, I can't write a good story, okay? So I'm not <laughs> saying that I can do this, okay? How do you sell a mediocre story... Or so-so story, an okay story. You sell it with really good visuals and a really good soundtrack, right? So, so there's a lot of really cool things that 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 we can do right now uh, in movies and with um, you know the the graphics that we're able to do and the soundtracks and all those things can be great, and we can really be drawn to all that kind of thing. But if you think about the underlying story to it, you're kind of like, it's either crummy or it's kind of so-so, but it's not great. Now, one of the reasons I think this is the case is because a lot of modern storytelling, the, the heroes in modern stories oftentimes end up being the ones who are proud and arrogant and full of themselves. You ever, you ever notice this in like modern storytelling? Not all of it, but many times. One of the things I've noticed about a good story is that the heroes are humble people, right? If, if you read a good story, one that grips you, it's like the hero is the humble one. The hero is the one, you didn't think that he was going to come out on top and win, but he did. And it was in part because of his humility. Um... There is something about humility that makes you want to see that hero succeed, okay? So after all, who doesn't want Aslan to rule, right? Who does not want Aragorn to be crowned king? You you deserve this, right? You're thinking as you're reading this particular story. He deserves to be the king. He deserves to rule. He, He did not seek... His own good throughout the entire story. He always sought the good of someone else. He served, he sacrificed, he was humble, he was all these things, and he must rule. He must be king. Okay, that's a good story. And, and this is, let me just, I, I'm not trying to make any claim about people being Christ figures in other stories, but I, but I want to make a, a certain parallel here at Christmas, okay? We've been talking this whole time today about worship, and specifically the need to worship Christ. But I want to make just one observation, and that is this. How did this Christ come to this earth? He did not come with fanfare. By the way, he's the only one who had the right to do that. He could have, but he didn't. He did not come with loud processions. The creator of the universe, the God that sustains every breath that you take and holds the very fabric of the universe together, that God came to this earth in a smelly old stable. Does that make sense to anybody? it does not compute we don't have any category for this for that kind of a story Philippians 2 expounds on this and talks about Christ as one who is humble in fact Philippians 2 says you ought to be humble because Christ was humble in other words if Christ was humble how much more do you need to be Jesus came, and Jesus Christ was gentle, and is gentle. Jesus Christ came, and he was not arrogant. He came, and he was humble, and he did this great deed of crushing the head of the serpent. He did what he set out to do. And he took, through a very unlikely way of coming into this world in a stable, he took that ancient devil, the one responsible for bringing sin into God's good world, and he crushed him. And he reversed the evil, (coughs) even the evil in my own heart. Keep in mind that the work that Christ is doing work that Christ did on the cross is not just to vanquish all those evil things out there somewhere, but it is to conquer that evil and dead heart inside of me. He did what he set out to do. He crushed the head of the serpent. He reversed the effects of the curse, and he did this all on the cross, and he did this through his imputed righteousness. Now, here's the response to that kind of a story. A the, the, the couple of differences in this story. One, this story is a true story, okay? <laughs> Two, the hero in this story is not just some other uh, um, human being that can fail at some point, but he is God himself. And he did a very unlikely thing, and that is God himself who didn't need to do this, but he chose to become humble and to be gentle with us and patient with us and kind with us, even though we deserve his wrath. And he has taken the punishment that I deserved and he took it on himself. He could have left us to die, but he took that on himself and he experiences all the wrath of God on the cross and he dies, the God of the universe dies on the cross. He resurrects and comes back to life again. And the way in which he has done all of this has left us speechless. And the response that we must have to this is simply this He must be king. I will worship him. I will worship him. We have come to worship him. And the fact that he has conquered death and he has conquered the the serpent should make us not just worship him under compulsion, but we should say, I am glad that he has conquered. And it delights me that he is king. And I am happy that he has won. I long for nothing else except to be his loyal subject. Just, get, just let me be the, the, the guy who watches the door in, in the Lord's house. Just give me that meager responsibility so that I can be in service to the king. And the Lord, He has won. He has conquered death. He is the King. We have the opportunity to worship Him. And so let me just exhort us to make sure that our Christmas is about that. Yes, celebrate, open presents, eat cookies and roast and whatever. But just know that you're doing that in worship of the King. Thank you, Lord, for your grace to us. We thank you for the gospel. We pray that if there be anyone who does not know this king who has conquered, that you would cause them to repent and to believe in yourself. We thank you for Christ. We thank you for the gospel. We thank you for Christmas. We ask this all in Jesus' name, amen.